Hi, everyone. <coughs> and thank you so much for coming to the first ever CMC Failures Club. <laughs> My name is Sherry Donenfeld, and I'm a global kids and family entertainment brand strategist, but today I have a much better role. I get to moderate this incredible panel we have uh, around me. Um, so basically, we've got so much to get through, it's a short period of time. I actually know what you all ate for lunch, so you're probably metabolizing all that now. I'm going to be asleep in a second. Um, but uh, we, again, have a great panel, awesome track records, and really interesting experiences that have, uh, have a, based around failures that will eventually lead to success. But first, I have to say, it takes an awful lot of courage to sponsor a session like this. So please give it up for Jam Media for backing this one. And, and what's interesting, I, you know, I've been at the conference the past couple days, and we're just so conditioned to promote and glorify and showcase our successes. And if you've been in any meetings or you've been listening into other meetings, there's an awful lot of that going on here. Um, you'll, see, you'll, you'll understand that it's our failures that actually teach us a, a lot more than our successes. And what's interesting is I've done an awful lot of homework on this, and failure is such an unbelievably loaded word. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of people in this audience and certainly on the stage next to me who are more comfortable using the other F word than probably the word <laughs> failure. Yep. Um, however, if you think about failures, it's basically how we master life's basic skills. It's how we learn to walk. For those of you with children, you know how, it's, how you learn to talk. If you ever watch a child learn to eat, pretty disgusting, a lot of failures going on. Toilet training, won't get into that. How to communicate, manners, all of that. We, we all basically learn from failures. Um, and also, if you go on the internet and you see there are so many TED Talks and so many case studies of failures out there, and some famous other failure people are Steve Jobs, Arianna Huffington, James Dyson, Oprah Winfrey, Walt Disney, Marin, Marilyn Monroe, not, not pretty enough to do any acting. I mean, these are all some serious failures out there. There's also some pretty amazing products out there that have failed. The Apple Newton, anyone got an iPhone in their pocket? A microwave oven, cornflakes were a failure, and then there's a famous heart medicine that failed called Viagra. <laughs> oh, don't get too excited, Missy. <laughs> We've got lots to get through, so if I can ask you to please refer to your booklets for the, the full um, bios of our fantastic panelists. So what I'm going to do now is introduce each and every one, and actually, if you can hold your applause to the end, and then we'll just really get going. So first off, to my far right, we have Mr. Biring Goes, and he is Mr. Important Technicolor India, is what I've changed your title to. Uh, and and uh, Technicolor is obviously a leader in animation, visual effects, and gaming, and their studios have produced awesome hits such as Kung Fu Panda, Madagascar, Alvin and the Chipmunks, Jungle Book, Life of Pi, and many, many more. To my right is Anna, Anna Williamson. She's a TV presenter, radio broadcaster, life coach, counselor, and author of best-selling Q book promotion uh, books, Thank you, Aaron. including the most recent Breaking Mom and Dad, The Insider's Guide to Parent Anxiety. Hold up, most recent book. Oh, that one. There you go. To my left, yeah, okay, uh, is also Cahal Gaffney. Uh, Cahal heads up Brown Bag Films and is the COO of the Nine Story Media Group. I'm sure many of you know Brown Bag's hit shows, including Peter Rabbit, Octonauts, Bing, Vampirina, and Doc McStuffins. And last but not least, Miss Linda, Ms. Linda Siminski. Linda is the VP of Children's Programming of PBS in the US. Linda's got an incredible track record of pulling together and working with renowned producers to create hit shows ranging from Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood, The Wildcrats, Odd Squad, and Nature Cat. 
So we've got four fantastic speakers from four different countries. So without further delay, take it away, Biren. Failure number one, please. Good afternoon, CNC. I look back at the many things that prepared me for success in my lifetime. Great parents, good schooling, and a chance to travel the world at 20. Squash and tennis helped me to build my match temperament. My colleagues won't vouch for that one. My love for jazz helps me to innovate and improvise within a theme. My parents came from, come from two different religions, which I think has taught me tolerance and diversity. And I spent my teenage years in a, in a bloody Calcutta, which was a strife with riots and strikes and colleges and schools were closed. That was fantastic. Uh, it was a fundamental communist regime and nothing was predictable. Secret one, early exposures, early exposures teach us to read the signs and shape our own luck. My professional foundations were sales and marketing for a number of great brands in the first 10 years of my career. And then I got a chance to work with a really large corporate group in India, creating joint ventures, launching new initiatives, and learning how to engineer a business. I call myself a business architect. But I got to realize how fragile, temporary, and full of risk success really is. So secret number two, in all of our endeavors and backgrounds, however disparate they may be, our insights and learnings are always portable. UTV, now called Walt Disney India, had an animation business called UTV Tunes that I was asked to run about 18 years ago. The business was seriously loss-making, and we did not have the experience either in the company or in the country to help damage control the many moving parts that all of you know it takes to create animation. That's how I arrived in this business and blinking stepped into the sun. So secret sauce number three is the fifth line of that song that says, there's more to do than there's ever been done. I sang. Uh, UTV Tunes was one of the earliest animation companies in India. 800 artists, 200 people in a school that we ran, producing 2D animation shows with a number of people that you know, Canadian co-productions with Funbag and Decode and Cinegroup. We were getting our money partially in cash and substantially through rights in India and Asia. We had only two problems. One, the money was too little for us to run the business. And number two, nobody in Asia, any of the broadcasters wanted those shows because the sensibility didn't work. Other than that, everything was fine. <laughs> the company was, had just lost $2 million the previous year and had a total accumulated loss of $6 million, which in India is a lot of money. I know for you guys, it's chump change. <laughs> Secret number four. At that time, one feels truly at the end of one's wit, but it's the time to find a strength to carry on. No startup business or business in trouble ever comes to us with an instruction manual. So I'm going to write one, and it's going to be called uh, How to Get the F Out of an F Up. Uh, publishers. Um, my big regret is that when I looked up and saw so many other startups around me, there were about 75 companies starting out in India. And all of us had so much enthusiasm 
and time and money was pouring into, into loss-making ventures, I guess we were a little bit like the ostrich in its disposition. On the brink of professional suicide, which is what I had signed up for, I had to think and act really quickly. I flew to Canada, I sat with my clients, I leveled with them as to where we were stuck and what we needed to do, new workflows, uh, new approval processes, getting them to take their overseas supervisors out of our hair, and I asked them to give me two or three months to turn this around. I guess they had no choice at that time either. I came back and brutally had to let go 700 people and keep about 100 people around me, made them sit in a room close to where I was and keep animating these shows and found that they could do eight seconds a day on one and 12 seconds a day on the other. That for me was a eureka moment. Secret six, when we are afraid, we do not see clearly and we tend to process information with heightened drama and exaggeration. I learned through that experiment that with the 800 people that we had, we were producing less than one second a day. So we went back and hired 300 people in and fixed targets where if they met their target, they got 125% of their previous salary. If they did 75% of their target, they got their previous salary. If they did 50% of their target, they got half their salary, but they were gone in two months if they didn't improve. And with that, this is what happened. We managed with 300 people to go from a loss of minus $2 million to almost breaking even. So secret seven, you have to get a buy-in from everyone that you work with, your clients, your employees, and everybody else. I went back to the board and asked them for five to seven million dollars and uh, to rebuild this business. And, and they told me that with six million there already, they were not going to give any more money. So basically, I had to close the studio once again and find a new way to continue in animation as an independent producer. <sighs> yeah, sometimes success feels just the same as failure. <laughs> so my final tip to you, uh, since I'm in the UK, comes from a great man called Sir Winston Churchill, who says that success consists from going from one failure to the other without any loss of enthusiasm. <laughs> And finally, I'm still here. I'm lucky to run one of the world's largest CG studios with 3,300 artists. At Technicolor, we, 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 we're doing great work for a lot of people, but we have room for many more of you. And remember the last secret one. The game is never over till the fat lady sings. Thank you. <laughs>
and you're evangelizing that business, but you're failing at the same time, and many others were as well. So I've actually started doing a lot of work, and many people in this room have been to the association that I help run and try to, try to keep that fire going. Perfect, thank you. And next up we have Anna, who's gonna share with us a very personal story and maybe provide some insights on the sort of psychology of failure. Yes. Thanks. And promote two books. Yeah, promote two books. Yeah. Tough fact to follow as well, thanks for that. Honestly. Uh, if you is... have different weight categories, you'll find. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what you mean, Baron. Um, Lovely to see you all, ladies and gentlemen. So, um, Baron had a lovely PowerPoint. I have this, but I think it basically speaks volumes because I'm going to be talking to you about a really personal time in my professional life. And I'm really proud, actually, that I have, by complete coincidence today, um, both of my producers, uh, both of my bosses um, of this particular show in the audience. So I'm really proud. And I guess, yeah, I am blatantly holding up my two books, but this, this is what failure is for me. Um, I'm going to explain to you how I turned what I consider one of my life's biggest failures or how I perceived it at the time, and that's the key word there, perception, and I turned them into arguably my most biggest success um, to date. Now, forgive me for using notes, um, but as you'll know with all presenters, we gob off for hours if we're given the chance, um, and I want to keep it concise as much as I can whilst getting through most of my story. This is the F word, it is talking about failure, and I think, might I just add, a particularly brilliant topic to have brought to, uh, to the CMC. And as you know, you know, it can be very hard to tweak out the positives from a very negative situation. I'm sure you've all had negative situations in your life, personal and professional. I would like to say I've always been a, a glass half full kind of person. Um, but a huge mental health wallop, as I like to, to phrase it, threatened my career over a decade ago. And I know mental health is talked about a lot now in the media, but it certainly wasn't at all uh, when I was going through my, um, my problems. It was an extremely exposing time for me, a time I felt that I personally had failed, a time that I felt I'd let other people down, people within my team, and mostly I felt I'd let myself down. It was a time where... I truly believed and felt my career was dead in the water. So I started off, um, God knows how long ago, now about 18 years ago um, as a kids presenter, and I'm, I'm very lucky to have had um, a, pretty, a pretty good career. I started off at the, I don't know if anyone remembers Carlton Kids, way back in the day, yes. That's where I sort of cut my teeth there and then moved on over the years to Channel 5's Milkshake, particularly good there, Lou. Um, on to Disney, then CITV, GMTV and Nickelodeon. And somehow over the decade, I managed to forge a career and pay the mortgage without ever having had a proper job. Somehow I've got away with it for this long. As I found, everyone expects you to fail in such a precarious industry. People that are outside the industry particularly expect you to fail. A lot of people <coughs> urging you to get a backup career. But this actually only just served my fuel, just fueled my determination even more to prove those doubters wrong. It was all going pretty swimmingly, actually. Until I had what you might call well, it was called this a nervous breakdown. It was an emotional breakdown at the age of 25. At the time, I was presenting this show. Some of, you, some of you may be aware of it. Certainly a couple of people are very aware of it because it, they created it. This is Toonatic. Um, it was on ITV um, from, I think it was 2005 to 2010. I can't remember. I think it was. Yes, it was. Thank you, boss. Um, and it was a job I absolutely loved. Absolutely loved it more than anything. 
yeah, I had so many other issues going on behind the scenes in my private life as well. Pressure on myself not to let the team down. Months of badly coping with panic attacks, insomnia, OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, stuff I didn't tell anyone, certainly didn't tell anybody at work. And I had what I call in one of my books, uh, meltdown day. I had meltdown day at work. Um, at Studio 5 uh, at TLS, never a fun day for anyone to completely, and I'll say as I felt it, lose your shit at work in front of everybody on TX day. It's never fun, ever fun to break in, burst into tears and completely fall apart in front of your entire team. But that's what happened to me. And subsequently, I'm pleased to say, didn't feel it at the time, I was very embarrassed, but I was diagnosed by a psychiatrist with GAD, generalised anxiety disorder, depression and panic disorder. Now, at the time, I thought my career was over. I really, really did. Only within myself. No one had told me it was, but I felt like it was. I was embarrassed. I felt extremely exposed. I felt that no one would want me. I felt I was deemed a liability, unreliable, perhaps, to my bosses. I felt like a total failure. I felt I'd screwed up my dream career, and at that, so very, very publicly. But in that moment, through the mental health fog, the breakdown that I was going through, I decided it really was, I don't know how I managed to find it, maybe that gritty determination was still there somewhere. I decided it was either sink or swim, and thank God I chose to swim. Coming back to work quietly wasn't an option for me. Okay, And you'll all understand, going off in the middle of the autumn quarter is never going to go down very well. But that's what had to happen, and my bosses were amazing at that, they really were. Therapy, I found, was absolutely incredible. Through therapy, I made changes within myself. I had to recognise where I needed to address my issues within myself. I had to learn to communicate. That was a key thing for me, communicate more effectively with those around me. Learn not to people, please. Learn not to just say yes to everything and anything and putting myself at the bottom of that scrap heap. And I had to work out what I wanted from life and why in my personal life. I had to have some difficult but very necessary conversations with certain colleagues as well who needed to give me space at times to do my job as best as I could. And I'm not just saying it because they're here, but my bosses were absolutely amazing. And with hindsight, I realised I should have trusted them more and told them more about what was going on when things were really, really tough. People can't help you if you don't let them help you and tell them. So I chose to succeed and not let my mental health ruin my career. And it wasn't easy, let me tell you. In fact, I have to say, though, it's, it's an odd thing to say, but it was the best thing that ever happened to me, is having a mental breakdown, both professionally and personally. I chose to use my challenges, my perceived failures, to an advantage to help others, to help me. Uh, they were and they still are a part of me. I spoke about mental health to the press. Now, this initially didn't have a very positive reaction from some people who felt at the time I should keep my issues to myself because I might get fired for being a mental case. That's what I was told. Not at work, I'd like to point out. But thankfully, the majority of people responded to my story and were pretty grateful of my honesty. So I joined the Mind Charity, Mental Health Charity and the Prince's Trust. My eyes were open to a whole new like-minded audience and demographic that I'd never noticed before. And I wanted to do something positive and to drive change and destigmatizing mental health, particularly within this industry of media. I was normal, and I always call myself normal, yet I had been blighted so badly that I really was close to chucking in the towel when it got really bad. So as a kids' TV presenter, Childline was my natural mecca. And after a conversation with good old Esther Ranson, I trained and joined Childline as a volunteer counsellor. My new passion was driving me forward in a new career direction. 
And my precarious TV career, where I was waiting for the next contract or the next screen test to appear, suddenly didn't actually, for me, seem to be the be-all and end-all anymore. I felt more in control of my life, or at least part of it, and it buoyed my confidence and self-esteem even more, which was key. I liked helping people, so I started to get that good old backup career that so many of us TV presenters try and do. Started training in therapy disciplines, counselling, life coaching, hypnosis, NLP. I loved it. I soaked it up. And I never initially intended this career to be transferred into the TV or the media. It was my thing, away from it. And ironically, whilst doing it, I started to care less and less about being on TV. This is where I felt a bit more worthy. And it's funny because when you're no longer begging for a job in telly, fate has a funny way of working and then actually giving you that job. And my thing got picked up on the one show that I really wanted to be on at the time, which was this morning. It was the first job that, ironically, I was offered without ever actually asking if I could be on it. They needed a summer, more youth-focused agony aunt, and I joined the team, which was amazing. And then Big Brother got in touch, got wind of the fact that I was a younger therapist with mental health issues, so professionally and personally could speak about it. And then other radio shows and mag magazines, and suddenly my yesteryear failure of having a breakdown was giving my TV career a massive new resurgence. Turns out there weren't and aren't many therapists that are fully trained up TV presenters. So my TV and radio uh, took a slight curveball. And then my, I'm going to get to the end of mine because I know, sorry, Ed, I'm going over. See, I, I do my notes and I still go over. But this is the important bit for me while I talk about the books. It took a curveball and my agent suggested about writing a book all about my mental health um, experiences. After years of giving it away for free, uh, so many of us do in column inches, she said, write it down in a book. Now, I always use J.K. Rowling as my, uh, I know we've probably mentioned it, as my motivation anecdote. She was refused 16 times by a publisher for Harry Potter. So when Bloomsbury, J.K. Rowling's publishers, got in touch and said, we'd like to back that and sign you up for a three-book deal, it just felt like fate. So, I'm coming to a close now, you're pleased to know it. Breaking Mad launched last year. Breaking Mad, The Insider's Guide to Conquering Anxiety. Went straight into Amazon number one bestseller, beating Mary Berry's Bake Off Cookbook. <laughs> which I was bloody chuffed about, I'm not going to lie. So were Bloomsbury. That, their gamble paid off. And it was followed. I had a baby, and that was really rubbish as well. Isn't that bloody hard, having kids? Uh, so I did another book, Breaking Mum and Dad, The Insider's Guide to Parenting Anxiety, which has also gone into the bestseller. I'm blessed with a career that includes TV and radio. I'm writing my third book with Scholastic, which is all about children's and teen mental health. That's coming out in March. And I'm a practising therapist as well. And by way of conclusion, I still have my setbacks. My mental health is good, but it does have its challenges still. I know my limits. I know what makes me tick. But I turned a personal and professional failure. I ignored any of my critics, and I forged ahead because I believed in myself and my capabilities. So I guess never let anyone tell you you can't, because I am proof that you can, and you can beat Mary Berry. That was awesome. Thank you. And, and needless to say, very different from Burns. Uh, next up, we have Cajo, who can tell us about his failures in building brown bag. It should be on the board. It's right there. Oh, Baron, you took it. No. Oh. How you doing? Um, so uh, this, this is an old slide I stole from the internet, but it's the old jokes are the best. Um, success, what people think it looks like, and then what it really looks like. And uh, I think... Uh, this is true of everybody who's had any class of a career that tries to uh, back backdate their uh, CV to make it look like a strategic um, career path. Um, but I've been, I set up Brown Bag in 1994, so I mean, there's quite a lot of squiggles, and uh, there's a few people in the audience who will probably tell me I'm leaving out many of the failures. <laughs> um, 
But today we're going to talk about the squiggles and the failures. So a couple of the, the top failures that uh, I've encountered over the last 24 years. Um, first one was I failed maths in school, which is quite a career-limiting choice. Uh, it meant I couldn't get into college. I wanted to, be, I wanted to study uh, fine art, but I couldn't get into any of the art colleges. So I said, I'll try animation. Uh, I didn't know much about animation, but I knew I wanted to do something artistic. So uh, I went to animation college, and I failed animation college. <laughs> um, I was making short films in college when they had a studio that wanted everybody to work in Don Bluth. And I, ironically, I thought, I don't want to work in a big studio. That's too, too creative, or that's too commercial and uncreative. I'm an artist. So, uh, so I got kicked out of college, and uh, I started Brown Bag Films then, just to make short films. I had no business plan. I knew nothing about business. And uh, I had none of the tools or the skills to, uh, to, to start a company. Um, so it was, it was just the accidental entrepreneur in me, I suppose. Um, but it's kind of funny because uh, in 2001, I got nominated for, a sh for an Oscar for a short film that I directed. And uh, I have that frame in my office, which is the letter that kicked me out of college with the letter that says, congratulations, you've been nominated for an Oscar. Um, <laughs> And uh, I still haven't accepted uh, that teacher's uh, LinkedIn connection. He's hanging out there in the ether. But, uh, <laughs> it's, uh, but uh, you know, along the ways, we've had lots and lots of failures in Brown Pag. And I suppose the first failure I found was, you know, failure to know your customer, failure to know your audience. And I can remember the first time I went to the Cartoon Forum pitching an adult animation idea to a whole bunch of kids broadcasters, you know. So, um, you know, and it taught me a very, very valuable lesson, like, if you're going to come back again, know, know what your audience is, know what you're doing. And today, I say that we don't work for Disney, we don't do, do shows for any of, the, any of the broadcasters, we make shows for children. And that's such an important uh, um, philosophy that we have, and that's why we always try and identify with a six-year-old. And that's what keeps us all professionally immature, you know, is that we're focused on, uh, on the audience. And make, make shows for kids first, and then broadcasters second. Um, along the ways, we've had a lot of other uh, failures, and one of them was the, our failure to focus. And I think anybody who has a business, you do a little bit of everything. You know, we're all entrepreneurs, so it's hard to say no to income. So we had TV commercials, we had this, we had that. We were doing bits of everything, and uh, we shut down our commercials business. Um, yeah, kind of around the late 90s or early 2000s, um, and it was half our turnover. And it was quite a big step for us to do that because uh, we, we, we had no plan, and we just said we were going to just do one thing and do it really well. And we started to focus on uh, long-form TV series work. And that's the great thing about success and failure is that with success, you just need to be right 51% of the time. So it's, uh, we were lucky. <laughs> And, and that, that, that is the truth of a lot of, a lot of this, is that you know, luck plays such an important part in any path to success. But um, it is important to take these big steps and uh, put, put it all out there and see if, it, see if it works or not. But that was, that was a really important thing. And today, all we do is just one thing and one thing only, and it, it, it's focus. And I think that's something that's really important uh, lesson that I learned. Financials. As you can imagine, somebody who failed maths should not be running a business. Um, I, for years, uh, 
I, you know, like keeping accounts was just a disaster. And the first 10 years or so of brown bag was an absolute mess. Um, and like now, ironically, I spend my days looking at management accounts and EBITDA and pacing analysis and all sorts of boring, <laughs> boring stuff. But I, no, I do love it. But it's just uh, of all the, if, if, I, if an older Cahill could tell a younger Cahill what to do, he would say, get a good accountant at your right hand from day one. Um, instead, I surrounded myself by animators and artists. And uh, it's, it's just such an important thing that the left brain and the right brain need to work together and to have a really strong uh, financial person at your right hand to guide you through all, all of this. So uh, that, that's, that's a lesson that uh, I failed on many times. And uh, I think I've got it sorted now, though. Um, failure five is hire your own problems. And I think um, in business, anybody, uh, you know, we all, we all have challenges in work. But over 24 years, you know, there's been a number of people that, you know, may not have suited the company. And I think the big issue, the mistakes that we would have made would have been hiring to people's CV and not to their, uh, not to their company culture. So you need to get people in that suit the culture of the business and uh, not just their, their, their CV. Uh, finance again, um, this keeps coming up, it's a theme. <laughs> I'm nearly finished. Um, but the main point I'd say about this is failure to take action. So when you have somebody in the business that everybody has a ceiling. So if you're, you know, the, the, the CFO in your business when you're turning over a million is not the same person when you're turning over five million. Same in HR and same in development and pretty much everything. So it's to recognize what people's ceilings are because the fairest thing you can do to people is to let them go uh, because your loyalty is to the business as it, as it develops. Um, and then the other key point, I suppose, is that innovation is all about celebrating failure. And that really means having a culture where you learn from failure and you make mistakes and it's okay. And, you know, it goes back to the culture in the business. It's, it's like, what is failure? It's, it's, it is innovation. And we all know that book about, you know, innovation, uh, the, the tipping point, you know, it's you have to innovate or die. There's no way that any of our business models will be the same in five years' time. So we have to embrace innovation, and that means embracing failure in your business. And to that end, just to wrap it up, um, it's a quote that I've lived by. It's fail fast and fail cheap. And I just added in that fail often. And I think that's the most important thing that you can do is to... Uh, you know, I think at the heart of any innovative business and the heart of um, Brown Bag, which has kept us going 24 years and hopefully another 24, um, but it's always been about celebrating failure and innovating, you know. Anyhow, that's, that's my, so over, over to the next speaker. Thank you. It's interesting. I picked up another a lot of F words like finance and focus in, in your presentation. Um, and coming back to the word focus, I just think everybody is doing way too much, and we, we really all I think struggle to focus. I mean, do you have any tips for, for the audience on how to get that focus, and how do you convince your management to walk away from was it fifty percent of your revenues and for the reasons of oh, I need to focus? Yeah, it's 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 hard. I guess it's you know it's a, it's a hard a hard enough answer to uh, to. to to give you like in a, in a single point. Um, I suppose it's down to strategy as well. Like, I mean, if you have everybody pointing to the same North Star, and if it's not on, on, on line with the strategy, if it's not following the North Star, just get rid of it, you know? And I think that's, that's the most important thing is that 
everybody should know what your strategy is from your receptionist to your senior management team. So don't be afraid to uh, share your, leave your business plan on the bus because nobody else can do it, you know? Yeah. Great, thank you. All right, Linda, you ready? You ready to fail? I am ready to fail. Okay, bring it. Thank you, Sherry. So hi, everyone. I, uh, I'm going to talk about a project I worked on and uh, how it went horribly wrong. So uh, I didn't bring slides because, uh, you know, what you'd be seeing is uh, my soul, my guts, <laughs> my brain. It's just too gruesome. But uh, most of my career has been uh, developing and overseeing uh, animated series. So uh, I wanted to talk about a, a, a series that I did. Uh, I made it with uh, an artist, uh, an artist I always thought was really funny. And he was also uh, a friend of mine from uh, long before we started this show. He came to me and he pitched it and I thought it was really funny. And so we made the show and uh, it, it did okay. It didn't do particularly well. And uh, the network was like, oh, well, and, and you know, we just moved forward. So uh, what exactly made this a failure? and not just another dud series. Because I've worked on a lot of shows that kind of got the same ratings and the same reaction and they were not a big deal and I just moved on. So uh, what is it that, that uh, made this one so traumatic that I sit here before all of you having a therapy session, uh, <laughs> exposing my, my, you know, my, my, my greatest inner thoughts. Uh, it starts with the expectation. So uh, this show got picked up, and after uh, after the the pitch, my boss looked at me and he said, "This could be the next Rocky and Bullwinkle." So uh, it's pretty high praise, and I was thinking, "Yes." Now I had just come off of uh, two pretty successful shows. One of them was Powerpuff Girls, and so I was feeling. Like, maybe I knew what I was doing. And uh, it turns out I didn't. I was just, um, you know, I, I was, I just had, I got my two successes out of the way first and uh, <laughs> moved on. But, but so, so the expectation is here. So, you know, that's, that's, you know, it can be pretty awkward when that happens. But here's where it, it starts to get interesting. So uh, a person in my department whom I, I trusted very much and continue to trust, uh, she said to me, I don't know, I don't really like this one that much. And my answer was not, oh, well, what do you think is wrong with it? It was along the lines of, no, you're wrong. And uh, so we're starting to see a little bit of a mistake here, right? Um, the head of research at the time came up to me and he said, oh, I see you're going after the younger audience. And uh, I think my answer to him was a little bit along the lines of, what do you know? And so, uh, so, so basically, I was given the answers and I did not accept the answers, I ignored them. So uh, the, it turns out the age skew was wrong. It, this, the show skewed young, it, it worked for kids under the age of five, anyone over the age of 11, and a little bit more for girls. And if you know anything about Cartoon Network, that's the opposite of their audience. So, you know, but I was given the answers. Both of these people who spoke to me handed me the answers and I ignored them. So, so yeah, you know, a mistake was made. And, um, at, you know, in, in the course of, of my time at Cartoon Network, somebody who wanted my job very badly used this show against me to say, well, she made that. And, uh, you know, but still, you know, not a big deal, but for me, this was traumatic. This was traumatic that, you know, I had made these mistakes, but I knew that, that, you know, even though there was no way to fix this problem, 
what I had really done badly was I ignored the feedback I had gotten. I ignored the correct answers. I ignored the signs. And I just marched on with this you know, very big plan for how successful this show would be. <laughs> And what happened was, you know, when I, I tried to think about, uh, you know, the, the, the success of this, and really the success was that I, I learned a lot of tough lessons, and I, I learned them, uh, you know, right there by being in the trenches. And the first thing that I learned was television is very democratic. Everybody watches it. Everybody is an expert in television. And if people say to you, I have a thought about your show, you shouldn't say, well, you know, whatever, you should say, okay, tell me, what is it? And if they give you feedback that's negative, you should quiz them about it. And you should just keep quizzing them about it until you feel like you've gotten enough feedback that you, know, you have a, a picture of, uh, of what you're doing. Don't be dismissive, uh, arrogance is bad. So I, I had to learn this the hard way by being arrogant and finding out that that was a huge mistake. Uh, and I, I think I felt more than anything about the show, I just felt embarrassed that I'd been arrogant, that I'd been dismissive of people, uh, you know, who were who were right. Um, I also learned that uh, if you if you are a person pitching a show around the office and getting feedback from people, you're also building support for the show. If people see it at an early stage, uh, you know, they they will offer you feedback that can be helpful, and they'll be you know in on it as part of the process. If you hide it like that and then don't show anyone until it's all done, no good comes of that. You know, it's it, people are much more engaged if they're part of the process. Um, I. Uh, I started, you know, looking for ways to get feedback and accepting it and really listening to it and, you know, even taking feedback from, you know, the least experienced people in the office. I figured they're closer in age to our audience than I am. So, you know, I should just accept feedback. And now I accept feedback all the time and I feel like this has really been helpful. So uh, it's made me a better colleague. It's made me a better leader. It's made me think harder. And it's made me consistently say to people when something's gone wrong, okay, well, so what did we learn from this? And uh, so I, I, the, the twist in the story is I went back to this creator. He, he went on to be an extremely, extremely successful children's book author in the United States. And uh, he doesn't need me anymore. He's way more successful with books than he is with animated series. I went back to him. And I said, uh, you know, do you want to do, you want to try this again? And he said, eh, not really. And uh, he said, too traumatic last time. And I, I talked him into trying it again. And so we made a pilot and it was, everything went wrong and it was a nightmare. And, and you know, not because of his creativity, he actually got it more right this time, but the production company he was working with went bankrupt and, you know, and nothing to do with him, but, you know, it was all went awry and he didn't want to be connected to them anymore. And the only way we could salvage anything was to walk away from the project. So that was unfortunate. But the twist really comes when I confess to all of you that I'm still trying to figure out how to work with him. I keep thinking, well, he's hugely successful. People love his books. There's got to be something there. I mean, right guy, wrong medium the first time, you know, wrong company the second time. Why not go back for a third? And so, so the question to you that I'd like you to ponder as you, you know, head home is, um, is, am I crazy or is this just uh, dogged persistence? I don't know the answer to that. So, so that really is the, the question. But, um, you know, I, I, I learned a lot in this process. And, uh, you know, I, I felt like, you know, while I, I, I never felt like I was about to be fired because of this show or anything like that, 
I think because I had such a grand plan for it and I came nowhere near that, uh, it, it helped me sort of manage my expectations from that moment forward. And um, you know, the failure was so personal, so incredibly personal that um, you know, I, I feel like you know, I, I feel right now like I'm letting it go, and uh, you know, maybe now I can uh, you know move forward. But uh, so that's that's my story, and uh, you know, I'm I'm uh, you know, maybe I can recreate it if I work with this guy a third time, but hopefully not. Great, great. Thank you very much, Linda. Really interesting. Uh, very interesting and unique perspective, but the one question I had, there sounded like there was an awful lot of self-awareness and self-growth here. Was there throughout the process an aha moment or was it a gradual thing and sort of who helped you along the way or was it all? I think it was the exact moment when I realized that the guy from research was right. You know, I could cry. It's like I, <laughs> I uh, you know, I had been very dismissive of him, and uh, you know, I thought, eh, what does he know? And he doesn't understand what I'm trying to do here. This is, you know, this is so innovative. He can't even understand. And and then, you know, he basically called it. And uh, and then, you know, as I looked at the numbers and I looked at the ratings and all, and I realized he was exactly right. You know, he had good instincts that I didn't have, or or perhaps that I had been, you know, like ignoring all of the signs. You know, there was a point where. We went from script to board, and the script was funny, and the board wasn't as funny, and I was like, Ugh. but I thought, well, you know, a whole team of us are working on this. They won't let us down. And, um, you know, so I, I was, I think, trying to cover up for it, but the aha moment came when I realized the researcher was right, and I should have listened to him. And, you know, I... Uh, I saw him at Kids Screen a few years ago, and I was super nice to him. And, and I was know, just going like, to ask so, if you if you uh, did tell him or said it with flowers or something. Yeah. I you know I was like, hey, you know, any insights on anything that I'm doing these days? But uh, no, now I'm I'm just I'm extraordinarily nice to him and anyone from research because I, I feel like these are these are you know the magic people who like you know can help you. So so you know going from I know everything to you know I'm I'm gonna just trust this guy. You know that's a big shift from thinking you know stuff to realizing that you know you know you have a lot of mistakes ahead of you and you know you should you know ask the helpers, which is something Mr. Rogers teaches us in the U.S. So, uh, so it really, and I'm not saying that to be nice to you as a researcher, but <laughs> you know, it was it, that was the aha moment. Oh God, he gave me the answer, and I ignored him. What an Fair idiot enough. I was. So that was the aha moment. Excellent. Thank you, and thank you very much to our panelists. So I think at this point we're going to throw it to the floor. Um, if I think there are some roving mics. Yes, I see mics on both sides. Um, if you have a question, please raise your hand, and if you can kindly introduce yourself, tell us who you are, where you're from, and Feel free to let something go. I went from a host moderator to Oprah Winfrey during this session here. <laughs> so questions out there, comments or share a failure? There's, there's one right over here, there we go, thank you. Hi there, that was great, thank you. Um, just there were sort of two different themes that seem to come out, one which is listening to people as you go through projects and, and careers, and the other one was kind of taking decisive action and perhaps being focused and that kind of thing. I just wondered, how do you know when to listen to people? Because we're often told to sort of have a very distinctive voice and you know, to be clear in our heads of what we want to achieve. So how do you know when to kind of, when to take the view of the floor and listen to people and how do you know when to be really decisive and clear in what you think is right? Sorry, can you introduce yourself and, and is that question directed at one panelist or? I guess it came out of Linda's 
Okay. Talk at the okay. end, of it, but it, it kind of cuts across, I suppose. I'm Tony Cook. I'm a writer. Great. Yeah, I think I think that the the truth to that is is you know there, there's no right answer to that. It's it's sort of like you you can only sort of hone that over time. So experience will get you to the point where you start to learn when to listen to other people and and when to listen to the voice in your head. But I think I think that uh, you know there are certain things that uh, that are and it, it's really you shouldn't just like ignore other people. You almost have to sift through their comments as well. But you know, know who to trust, know who to ignore. If they're people that you trust and they're giving you advice, pay attention to it. You don't have to do what other people say and you don't have to do everything everyone says. You just sort of have to know, be able to tell when it, it sounds right to you and experience gets you to that point. And um, several failures will get you to that point as well. So, uh, you know, it, but I think that's a good question. I, I didn't know that when I was being given this advice. I realized it later. And I can still sort of tell the difference now when people give me bad advice, you know, it, it sounds bad, you know, it sounds like I'd never do that. So if you have that reaction, you know, just go with that as well. Brilliant. Any other questions? There's one right there. Thank you. Uh, hi, I'm Joseph Chan from Disney. Uh, I guess my question is for anyone on the panel who really wants to answer, but um, you've all kind of overcome failures and really done great things subsequent to that. Do you think that fear of failure was more of an obstacle to success than the actual failure itself? Or do you think there's a place in the emotional toolbox for fear itself? Is, is that directed to one of the panelists? or To anyone in particular. Anyone wants to take it? Any takers? Uh, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll jump in there. Yeah, fear of, fear of failure was far more fearful than the failure itself. And, and funnily enough, that is also the, I was diagnosed with panic disorder and panic disorder is the fear of having a panic attack, not the actual panic attack, um, which, is, which is balmy, isn't it, when we think about it. So I think, yes, often it is the, it's the assumption, it is the fear that we are most worried about than the actual action itself, um, which is something that I certainly had to learn. And it is that, you know, when you do hit rock bottom and you get to that place, um, and you realize that the actual failure itself isn't that bad, and you tease out, and I think as everybody has said, you tease out what is that positive, what, it, what can you learn from that, and then just start making those steps in that direction. Um, I think that is when you start to lose the fear. I, don't f I used to fear failure. I don't fear failure at all anymore. In fact, I embrace it because it just makes me even more bloody determined to succeed in something else. Just to, to add to that, um, Silicon Valley um, came out of having no fear of failure and celebrating failure. And back in the early 80s or so, when um, Silicon Valley was becoming this hub for America for innovation, uh, it was up there with Boston. And Boston had a greater fear of failure, and it never materialized. So the whole Silicon Valley kind of uh, region came from that culture of celebrating failure. So I do think it is, uh, it is an important cultural ethos to, to have to, to progress. Actually, Dyson, who I mentioned earlier, I can't remember how many times it, it, he took to create that Hoover, but they have a, a culture of failure and they have failure meetings and they have the failure of the year. It, it's embedded in their corporate culture, which is interesting. We've got a question up front. You, yeah, if you, you still remember your question, yeah. Question up front. Everyone keep thinking of your questions. Thank you. Um, my name's Charlotte, I'm from Channel Mum. Uh, I just wondered if um, any of you have any tips about um, how to get over failure and how to kind of protect your own mental health, you know, because there's a talk about failing fast. 
how do you keep yourself kind of say, sane <laughs> in between, you know, that time? How do you get over it if you've got any techniques or anything? I mean, it's, it's, it sounds like a, an obvious one. And for me, I guess, to answer mental health and mum. Hello, Channel Mum. I love Channel Mum, <laughs> as of you, Mum. You know what? It's to realise that there's life outside your work. I know that sounds really obvious, but I didn't even entertain it properly. And it's so important as a therapist now myself, I permanently work with people on just having a real 360 on your whole life. Work is super important. I realised that. I had a baby and 10 days after I had a baby, I was pining to get back to my job. I never realised I'd want to work that much. But it's super important. I know we all bang on about the work-life balance, but... We will fail at various dis at different aspects of, of your life. I failed at being a parent initially, you know, but I've learned from that. And I think, for me, it's just focusing on the constants that you have and recognising what foundations actually support your entire life and that it isn't the be-all and end-all to be permanently online, permanently at work, permanently doing this. Just give yourself a freaking break. <laughs> yeah, there's a bit of a semantic trick as well, which is don't call it a failure. Um, a lot of times at work now when I do pilots that I, I think are a little, you know, sort of experimental, I will position it as, you know, we're doing an experiment or we're going to try something. We don't know if it'll work. What we're going to try to find out is X, Y, and Z. And then we do it, and then I make a big deal of recapping what we learned and talking about it, and if we learn nothing or if we learn that it was just horrible, then you know, I talk through that and everyone feels like, wow, we're learning so much and, and well, that was interesting or let's not do that again. Or, you know, it's like by not just saying, well, we failed, mm. it goes a long way. You know, if you position a lot of things as, as experimental or, or, you know, identify what you want to figure out, then, you know, you just have results at the end of it. It's more like the way scientists approach things, like a lab experiment. And uh, it seems to work really well. You know, just everybody's mindset is different. You know, if you say we're going to do something that's going to be brilliant and it's not, then it feels like failure. But if you say, here's what we want to figure out, entirely different approach. Mm. There's, um, there's also the technique that uh, seems to work both in, you know, business and personal life and certainly with the teams that we all work with. And, and that is to focus on strengths. So every time you're in a tough situation, you kind of want to resort with your team to help them to, to do things with their strengths. Things that are weaknesses take a longer time to work out. So those are more things that you'll do on the side as development things. But in everything that we talked about, including the example that I gave, was to find from the same environment, from the same team, from the same tools, from the same technologies, what strengths we could bring out from that by playing to strengths. And I think that in times that are really tough, uh, that's probably the right thing to focus on, is to kind of really figure out what, what you're good at or where the strengths lie and amplify those and encourage those and, make, and celebrate them and use them actually in the, in the solution. Great, that's, I mean, that's great advice. Any other questions? Yes, we've got a question in the middle. Allison, can you tell us who you are, please? <laughs> it's, it's on its way. Hi there, um, Alison Warner from Technicolor. Um, so, Carl, as COO of Brown Bag, who do you go to for support for fail? You know, when things are looking like they've failed. Yeah, it's it's. Uh, I suppose it's your management team. You're only as good as your your team around you. So, um, you know, and, and it's often, you know, 
when, when there are failures, it's a team effort, you know? So there's no, I think that's the other important thing about failures is that it isn't an individual, it's not about fault. I think um, you can look at failure, a lot of people see failure as finger pointing and finding fault, and I think it's, it's really important that, uh, that it's a team effort, it's a team decision, and you have post-mortems and you do all that. So um, there isn't any one individual that I go to and say, you know, and I have a little cry and say, oh my God, it was his fault, you know, it's like, but it, it, but it is about um, sitting with your team and discussing mistakes that you've made in the business, so. Um, I think that's really important, the whole team effort, definitely. Yeah. I think, uh, Kahal, in your presentation also, what came out fabulously was that it's not native textbook intelligence that normally wins the day. I mean, if you look around this room, most people had people that came first in the class, I'm sorry if you did, but uh, uh, but you see that those who came you know, right at the top in school and college and business school where I went, and you find that those people did not really achieve as much in the, yeah. in, in the sense that we're talking about it as people that just applied themselves and, and played to their strengths and did things that they loved. And the other thing that you brought out is that you know, uh, while you need to work on things, so you worked on your passion, which is fantastic, and made something out of that, which is movie making, but we still had to figure out how to put the decimal point in the right place later on. And I think it's, it's just that. It's just the learning as you go along rather than the high IQ, high performer kind of story. Mm -hmm. So that's really important as well. And Baron, during your time of change and evolution, revolution, all of that, who did you have a, a great support system? Was there somebody particularly you went to or what got you through it? I think the thing about when I finally arrived at, in this industry, this is really different from manufacturing and stuff that I'd been in before in brands and consumer products, because this is an industry that's totally driven by relationships. So if you really look at the people that we meet in this room again and again, they kind of are, there's a fine line between friends and, and, and business partners mm -hmm. and stuff like that, which is, and that's the system, that's the support system. Your help system at work is very much uh, something that you can find in the environment you're on. And you, you, you don't need to go outside of it to get that same relationship. And I learned this when I first started in the animation business. Fixing all those meetings in it at MIP TV and MIPCOM don't help so much. But if you are near the piano at the Martinez bar, uh, that's how I got my first project. And you know, it, it, it works quite differently. Yeah. Brilliant. Brilliant. I think we have time for one more question from the floor. Um, this woman up here. Do we have a mic? Oh, it's, it's relaying its way across. Excuse me, it, it was this woman in the front row. Sorry, can you come back right here? Thank you. Yeah. It's a different, really. <laughs> Hello, um, I'm Nikki Stearman, I'm from Dobbit, and my question's for Linda. Um, you mentioned before about the high expectation you have when you've got pre previous successes. So I'm wondering if the fear of failure is something that increases as you progress through your career, and whether you'd be able to comment on that? Uh, I, I think, uh, you know, I, I don't have, I, I don't have the same fear of failure everyone else has because I, I've always been um, kind of oblivious, which at first was a big problem and then became a big plus. So, I, uh, I and 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 I think you know, ob obliviousness is is really underrated. As a as a trait, and and it, I didn't quite understand how helpful it was until a couple of decades into my career. But just to be completely oblivious to the signs, and the, you know, I mean, that, that there has there have been moments of that where, like, people have said to me, you know, that's really 
you know, kind of a big risk, and, and I've been confused. It is, and there's been a lot of that, and I, I think it, it's, it's just that complete lack of, of not getting that that has really helped me. So I, it, it's funny, my, my fear of failure has been, like, it's, it's manifested itself in, in other ways. Like, you know, I, I show up at every event dressed incorrectly. And so I, I, you know, and I, there's nothing I can seem to do to fix that, but I'm very much aware of whatever I've, I'm wearing is wrong and, you know. So I, I'm concerned about that a lot, but I can't seem to fix it. Whereas, you know, picking shows, it's sort of like, that I understand, you know, I, I get it. So, so it's a different fear of failure I'm working through to begin with. But I think it's, it's sort of my lack of understanding of why something seems like a risk to other people has, has been a big plus. So I don't know how to get to that point. I don't know how to tell people how to get to that point. But my, my fears of failure have, have been in other areas. And, and they're, they're, they're deep, you know. It's like there are a lot of things I'm pretty neurotic about but can't seem to fix. But, but you know, I've had, I've had a weird comfort about picking shows because I watched a lot of cartoons growing up. And, and so I feel... So, so that's the thing. It, it, it's, it never feels like risk. And so, you know, that's why when, when, I, when I did fail with this particular show, it, you know, it was such a blow to me because, you know, it, and I was getting an understanding of what it felt like to really screw up. And I don't even know if, I had, if other people felt that way about what I had done. I just felt that way. So I, I think, you know, just focus probably is, is the thing that gets you away from fear of failure is just to be clear about what you're doing and to really think about it and, you know, do all the things that you can to sort of see if it's going in the right direction. But, um, but I do understand the fear of failure, you know, in these other areas, and I can't even quite figure out what to do about them other than, you know, maybe hire a stylist or something, I don't know. But, but you know, it's like, it's like I've just chosen other areas to fail in and I'm, you know, I've embraced them as, like, oh well. And so, uh, so that's probably not the answer you wanted. But um, well, here, here is the answer that everybody will hopefully get. Can I ask all of our panelists to give our, our fabulous audience here one tip to walk away with? One tip, thought, or recommendation? Apart from the 10 that I already gave. Yeah. Oh. This, this, we're, we're, we're getting into bonus material here. So I, I think that the, if I was to look, I'll just broaden it to, to the to the studios that I see all around me. If, if I was to see in my last 18 years what really sent people down the path to failure quicker than every other path, um, it was the hype and the promise of technology. So the hardware and the software guys have come to several studios. People have started up studios for 18 years now with the latest bells and whistles because that's going to make them the best ever and make that whole thing happen. And um, We've embraced that. I think that for many of us in the CG world, the technology that we use is, the, is more advanced than in a space research lab. But I've come to the conclusion that for the last 50 years and for the next 50 years, technology has never invented anything and is unlikely to invent anything at all. And what invents anything is the power of ideas. Mm -hmm. And therefore, technology may or may not even enable that, but that's really what what we're all here to do, and I love coming to CMC because it's so rich with content and in the panels, is that you take away the ideas that are bubbling under in terms of what people want to see more of. You walk into the room across and we talked about China, someone else is talking about something else. So I think it's really this power of ideas, and I think the biggest fear that we should worry about failing at 
is to embrace technology because that's going to create the next big cool thing. So just a tip to beware. Brilliant. Thank you. Anna, your succinct tip? <laughs> it will be. Uh, slightly more personal, but it does, it, it ekes into professional. Just never measure yourself against anybody else. Everyone goes at a different pace um, and keep a healthy sense of perspective in life. Perspective, excellent. Um, I, know, I know I said uh, fail fast, fail cheap, and I think that's a real good motto to live by. Um, but, uh, but I also would contradict myself and say persist. You know, I think it's, it's trying to figure out the balance between persistence and uh, knowing when to let go. So I think it depends on what the, the situation is and what the, what the project is or whatever, but it's, it's just trying to persist. Don't give up hope, but sometimes you need to let go as well. Perfect. And Linda, yours is hire a stylist? <laughs> no, <laughs> not even. Uh, my advice is you have control of your narrative, uh, so don't let anybody else tell the story of you. And, uh, you know, even if you have messed up royally, uh, you've got control of how you talk about it. And so you can take that and you can, you know, turn it into a story, turn it into a narrative, explain what you learned from it, and, uh, you know, basically role model to other people what it's like to, you know, take something that went awry and make sense of it. And I think, uh, you know, especially in this environment, that is more meaningful to people than, than anything. Fabulous, thank you. Well, if you can all join me in thanking our very brave, gutsy panel, and also Jam Media for sponsoring this session. I'm gonna leave you uh, with first, first a, one of the million quotes I saw on failure out there, and then just a quick announcement. Um, the quote is, I have not failed, I've just found 10,000 ways that won't work. And that was Thomas Edison who invented the light bulb. So it's from the F word to the last word. This is the final session in uh, Cinema 3. So in about 20 minutes, um, the conference will close with the F word, which is just in Cinema 4 next door. Um, it's going to be a performance by Toby Thompson, who will leave us with some food for thought and food for the journey home, and some laughters and, te and tears, apparently. Anyway, thanks again. Enjoy the rest of the conference, and safe travels home. Thank you. Thank you.